gracious, loving, eternal Father, we approach Thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no merits of our own. There is nothing in ourselves acceptable to Thee. In our flesh dwelleth no good thing. But we plead no human merit or no moral attainments of the flesh. For we know that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in thy sight. But we come today clothed in the righteousness of Christ, pleading the blood of the Lamb and the great argument of the atoning death and finished work of Christ. And we rejoice today that we are accepted in the beloved, that as far as sin is concerned, it has all been judged in Jesus Christ and payment God will not twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Oh, we rejoice that we need no other argument, that we want no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and shed his blood for me. We stand before thee and we say, Prosper thou the work of our hands. Do this thing for us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And the people of God said, Amen. You may be seated. I wonder, would you open it with me at the sixth chapter of Second Kings? In the first seven verses of this chapter, we have a most interesting record of a happening in the life of Elisha, the prophet. There is no doubt about the historical accuracy of this narrative, but these narratives of the Old Testament, while undoubtedly absolutely accurate, they have also a spiritual interpretation and significance. The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. Elisha is a beautiful type of the Holy Spirit of God. Elijah is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember that when Elijah went to heaven by the whirlwind, that the mantle fell on Elisha, the double portion of power, and that Elisha remained on earth to carry on the work and the witness of Elijah. The great Elisha the Spirit of God is on earth today, carrying on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now you will notice that Elisha dwelt with the sons of the prophets. The sons of the prophets are a type of the church. And the Spirit of God dwells in His people and in the church. This is the real presence of Christ. I will send you another comforter. And praise God, the comforter has come. He is here among His people this morning. Now let us learn some lessons. Let us learn that it's in the church that the Spirit of God resides. He resides among His people. Our bodies are His temple. And we should see to it that the temple of our body is kept undefiled so that the Spirit of God may have absolute authority in our lives and absolute power in our persons. But you will notice that where the Spirit of the Lord resides, there is always an increasing church. Look at verse 1. The place is too straight. There is an increase. If the Spirit of God is in this church, this church will be an increasing church. If the Spirit of God is not in this church, this church will be a dying church. There's a lot of dying churches about today. Mr. Nicholson used to say in his wit, that if you brought a bucket of milk through the door, it would be ice cream before you got it to the pulpit. And that's absolutely true, isn't it? The coldness and the dearth and the deadness and the lifelessness results from the absence of the Spirit of God. You know, there are some churches that never pray for the Spirit to work. They just go on, and they have their hymn and their prayer and their hymn and their collection and a little sermon or an essay read, and that's it all. They do it every Sunday. I suggest they put it on a tape and lie in bed and just let it play over by itself. It would just be as good like the prayer prayer wheels of those that believe in such nonsense. Where the Spirit of God is, there will be a movement. I want you to notice that this movement of the Spirit of God in Elisha's day came when the church refused to be bribed. You see, in the previous chapter, there came one Naaman, a leper, and he was cleansed. And he bribed Gehazi, and Gehazi took the bribe. And immediately he took the bribe, judgment fell upon him. How many churches today are bribed by vested interests? 
and many pulpits are silent because of ecclesiastical preferment and advancement. How many preachers are under the dictation not of the Spirit of God, but of the denominational bigots. We had an example of that in the rector of Tynan the other day. He was preaching to the junior orange man, and he preached a really good sermon. And he said no one would silence him. And then Archbishop Sims called him to our mouth and brought him in and rebuked him. And then a statement of apology appeared. And he was sorry if he offended anyone. And he took back all that he had said because the bishop cracked the whip. I'm glad that no bishop will crack any whip over me. I'm glad that we have freedom as free Presbyterians to preach what we believe without fear of contradiction. The time has come when God's servants should be responsible to the Lord and not to man. But Elisha dealt with sin. And when sin was dealt with in the church, blessing came. Let us not condone sin in God's house. Let us condemn sin among the people of God. Let not worldliness be amongst us. Let there be no compromise with this evil and adulterous generation. Let us not try to conform ourselves to the world. Let us not try to run in the ways of wickedness. Let us, my brethren and sisters in Christ, ever walk the pathway of separation and the way of holiness. That pleases the Lord. When sin is judged, blessing came. I want you to notice something else, that the church in which the Spirit of God resides is a praying church. Look at that verse again. They prayed before they made the move. Let us, we pray thee, go unto Jordan. They prayed. They were a praying church. And before the church of Jesus Christ makes a move, they have got to pray. Before we plan, we must pray. And as we go to fulfill what God has called us to do, we must keep praying. Prayerlessness is the great curse of God's house today. We don't pray the way we ought to pray. Every one of us is guilty of this sin of prayerlessness. Not a name should be moved in the church without prayer. Every action that we take, every plan that we make, should be soaked in prayer. We should have the mind of the Spirit of God. 
I wonder today how many of God's people are in the attitude of prayer as they come to his house. I want you to look at verse 3, and you will notice that the church only moves at the command and in the company of the Spirit of God. Isn't that good? Elisha commanded, and they said, Elisha, it's not enough to command, but go with us. Come with us. My, it's great when the Spirit of God commands us, but it's better still when He accompanies us to do the work and the will of God. It's interesting to note, isn't it, that the church is always moving toward Jordan. Jordan speaks of death. And this was a move Jordanward. Check with me again in that verse. It says, Let us go unto Jordan. Jordan speaks of death. Jordan speaks of separation. The Spirit of God will not lead us into amalgamation with the enemy. This is a day of great combats, great monopolies in business. Every day we are hearing about mergers, and businesses are coming together, and great combines are controlling the various departments of our economy. And the same thing is happening in the religious world, great combine. I see that Bishop McAdoo, the ecumenical leader of the Church of Ireland, he says the ecumenical movement's not doing too well at the moment. Hallelujah for that. He says it has had a few setbacks. My, when I read that in the press, I said, Amen, Lord. You're working all right. But the whole aim of the ecumenical movement is for to have one great religious monopoly and to crush every other religious establishment out that doesn't conform to ecumenism and popery. You know, these ecumenical preachers, they say, wouldn't it be lovely to a one church? Let's all get together. You know, there was one great monolithic ecclesiastical structure in Europe when Rome ruled supreme. And when Rome had all under her control, those were the darkest days of European history. Monopolies are bad, and the religious monopoly will be the church. Of the Antichrist. Come by. Well, thank God when the Spirit of God is leading His church, He leads it in the path of separation. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We will not win this battle by carnal methods. Over and over again, I have been told that I have been warned by good people, however misled, that this church can never continue except we adopt the advancing methods of a modernistic church. We will never fill our pews 
except we have this, that, and the other. I want to tell you that I am convinced that we can fill these pews by the simple preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am convinced that nothing else is needed but old-fashioned, simple, plain preaching of God's Word and the power and demonstration of the Spirit of God. And if we have that, we'll fill the pews all right. You'll not have any trouble. May the Lord lead us to the Jordan of death. The man came to this church two or three Sunday nights ago. It's after we were elected to Stormont. And he said, you know, I believe Mr. Paisley will be changed now. He'll be quiet. Hmm. Imagine saying that. That's about the best laugh of the century, isn't it? He'll be mild. He'll not say the things he used to say. He'll be respectable. God save us from such respectability. I want to tell you, friend, if we ever needed to speak out strongly, we need to speak out today. If we ever needed to battle against sin and ungodliness in the age, we need to battle against it now. This is not a day to go conforming to the world. This is a day to go to the Jordan of death. And when you die to what the world thinks about you, and when you die to what your brethren think about you, and when you die to what your neighbors think about you, and you rise to walk in newness of life, then God will bless you as a Christian. He wants to lead us to the Jordan. Separation. May God keep this church separate. I was reading an article in New Sight concerning this church. My, how these people make up the stories. And it said that my son led the children's church in this church, in the minor hall. He walked into the minor hall and he got all the young people singing. And he led the worship. He's just a toddler of four years of age, so he's doing very well. He's doing very well. You ever hear the like of it? My, they'll make up the lies, all right. They can say everything. And then, of course, they said that it was a strange thing that Mr. Paisley fought for the underprivileged because this was a most wealthy church. Everybody was wealthy. Well, I wish I could meet a few of the wealthy members. I could do with a big subscription for the building fund today. I'd like to meet them. My friend, let me tell you that this church needs to keep strong on the path of separation. We need to keep strong on that path. Let us not conform one inch to the modern age either ecclesiastically, doctrinally, or any other way. Let us stand true. Then there's something else I want you to notice, that the power of the church is a borrowed power. It's not of itself. Alas, Master, it was borrowed. Any power you have doesn't belong to you. Anything that this church has, they have it on loan from heaven. I want you to notice this. Don't you think that any power that you have is yours, for it's not? 
It's on loan from heaven. God has gifted it to you. And I'm afraid the church today thinks that all that it has and all that it has attained to is its own accomplishment. And when a church starts thinking like that, God leaves that church. When they say we are rich, we're increased with goods and have need of nothing and know not that they're poor and blind and miserable and wretched. Anything this church has, it's been given by the Lord. This is God's gift. This building is God's gift to His people. It's God that does it. And let me say to you today that we can lose spiritual power. It can be lost. Do you know the greatest tragedy is the tragedy of Samson? Who went out and shook himself and he wist not that the Lord had departed. And you know there are churches in our land and there are preachers in our land and they haven't been awakened to the fact that they have lost the power. That's the greatest tragedy of all. But a church goes through the motion and carries on with the formula, but it's without unction and power from heaven. What a tragedy is that! A preacher shorn of strength, a church barren and like a wilderness, prayer meetings without life, church gatherings without fire. How many churches are in that sad and terrible state? Oh, you can lose the power. The power of yesterday may not be yours today. The victories of last week may not be yours this morning. How easily we can lose out with our God. How easily through neglect of His Word, through neglect of prayer, we can lose the power. Cease to be the witness that we once were for God. I want you to notice this, this man. He cried, alas, master, for it was borrowed. He recognized he had lost the power. There are some churches trying to cut down the forests of sin with the wooden handle. And there's no axe head upon it. And you'll chop a long time before you'll make any imprint or impact. Isn't that what's happening? And they're going on with their preaching. And they're going on with their praying. And they're going on with their singing. And they're going on with their churches. But they have lost the axe head. Power has gone! If there's anything that church needs, it is power! Power to draw men in to hear the gospel. Power when they come in to see them convicted and smitten by the power of God. It's great to see people smitten. Great to see the tears as they come to Christ confessing their sin. Oh, that this might be multiplied a thousandfold in this church. 
It's not enough to see them in their twelves and their scores coming to Christ. We want to see the eyes packed with seekers after the Lord. Have we lost the power? Must we cry, alas, Master, it was borrowed. A church without power is facing an impossible task. And if we haven't the power of the Spirit of God in this church, we are facing an impossible task. We'll never succeed. And we'd be better to waken up today and say, Oh God, we haven't the power. Help us. Help us, O oh God. Have we lost it? I want you to notice that the church has to come to the place where it lost the power. Look at it. The man of God, verse 6, said, Where fell it? I wonder, is God saying that to you and me? Where? Did you lose out with God? At what stage in life's pilgrimage? Where, believer, did you lose your zeal for God and your fire for souls and your motivation for prayer? Where? We've got to come to the place where we have lost the spiritual power. My, when we come to that place, God can do something with us. Abraham had to recommence his pilgrimage in the place where he left off, the place where he was at the beginning. Do you know where your backsliding ceases? It ceases where your Christian life left off, and you've got to come right back to that place. Where fell it? And I'm glad that when that man pointed out the place where he lost the power, then the miracle was done. The iron did swim, and he put out his hand, and he reclaimed what he had lost. Brethren and sisters in Christ, lost power can be reclaimed. The axe head can be fitted again to the child. The man who has failed can march from failure to triumph. The person who has backslidden can be restored and the years that the locusts have eaten can be made up to him. Why? Because the miracle can be done. God can do the miracle. May he do the miracle in all our lives today. And may the Lord help us to obey his word and be a church with spiritual power. This church needs a baptism of the Spirit of God upon its ministry. This preacher needs to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Our prayer meetings need to be set alight. Our church services need to be infused with spiritual Dynamite! May God do it for us. And may we be a church marching on in the light of God with the power of the Spirit resting upon us.